Hi, I'm Malcolm Hawker, and this is the CDO Matters Podcast, the show where I dig deep into the strategic insights, best practices, and practical recommendations that modern data leaders need to help their organizations become truly data-driven. Tune in for thought-provoking discussions with data, IT, and business leaders to learn about the CDO matters that are top of mind for today's chief data officers. Good morning, afternoon, or evening, everybody. I am Malcolm Hawker. I'm your host of the CDO Matters podcast. I'm honored today to be joined uh, by Mr. Jeff Jonas, who is the CEO and founder of Sensing. We're going to learn a little bit more in a minute here about what Sensing does for a living, but I'm excited to talk to Jeff. I've known Jeff two, three years-ish, somewhere in, in there. Uh, through my travels in, you know, obviously at Gartner and through kind of the data and analytics community writ large and through another community we're going to talk about, this this this, this subgroup of, of folks like me and Jeff who are fascinated with this thing called entity resolution. We're going to talk about that a little bit more and how it relates to what CDOs day in, do day in and day out. But um, I'll leave it at that. Jeff, why don't you introduce yourself instead of me doing all the kind of the flowery intros and, and tell us about yourself and about your company. So, you know, as you said, I'm the founder and CEO of Sensing. We're a spin out from IBM. IBM bought a company that I built called SRD. They bought my company in 2005. And that was my fifth generation entity resolution. And I built five engines over the years. And that fifth engine was a goodie. And uh, IBM has a product on the market today called Identity Insight. It's a great product. And while at IBM, I said, you know, for $50 million, roughly, plus or minus, if I start from scratch, I could build a radically different entity resolution engine. And uh, and so we did. We got commissioned to do that. They're hard to build these things. But maybe we should decode what this word entity resolution is. Yeah, let's, let's, let, let, let's, let's do that and, and, and then tell us why it is. But... Um, I would, yeah, I'd love to hear from the expert. I could, I could opine all day on an entity resolution, but I'd love to hear your perspective. Well, first of all, it comes by a lot of names. Like everybody, ha this affects everybody's life. Everybody experiences it. When you get duplicates in the mail, that's an entity resolution problem. When you have duplicates in your address book, imagine that you're the only curator putting things in your own address book. And now you got two or three copies. Imagine if you're a bank and you have like thousands of people that enter things. Imagine how many duplicates they have. So entity resolution is recognizing when two things are the same. And in, in healthcare, it might be called patient record matching. The first version I wrote for TransUnion credit bureaus was called debtor matching. So you could make one phone call for three debts, not call somebody three times. It's called fuzzy record matching, uh, link detection, disambiguation, <laughs> match merge. Lots of names. Right. But anyway, it's been congealing into this term entity resolution. Maybe it's being more used. And really, the definition that I would have for it is recognizing when two identities, you could call it, a person or a right. company or a plane, are the same despite being described different. One will right. be Jeffrey Jonas. One will be Jeff Jonas. One will be POB versus POB without the, you know, with dots. Right. But as well, recognizing when two records are different, even though they're so similar. Like you can have two records that are exactly the same, but one's JR and SR. Yeah. And then we're built a graph while we do it too. It turns out, you, uh, having been in this my whole life, if you if you don't remember who's related to who and adjacencies, you can't match as well. So that's what entity resolution is. 
And it's in, it sits behind master data management, CRMs, KYCs, AMLs, vendor supply chain, patient systems. Just right. Just I mean, it, it's, it's one of those things where it, it, it could touch everybody, right? Like we've all had horrible customer experiences, right? Where we check into a hotel that we've stayed in before and they don't know who you are, right? And, and they, treat, they treat you like a net new customer. Or, or conversely, when you get that piece of snail mail that is directed to you and it's very clearly not for you. I used to get a lot of email or snail mail coming to me in Spanish for some reason. I, I don't know why, but somewhere, somehow, somebody thought that I was a native Spanish speaker. That actually happened recently. Somebody came to my door only speaking Spanish and they were, they were looking to... Um, uh, you know, uh, explain the benefits of, of becoming a Jehovah's Witness. And, and they had sent their Spanish speaker to my door because they thought that I was a Spanish speaker for whatever reason. Those are classic examples of, yeah. right, not doing what you just talked about well. It creates a lot of waste for companies to think you are two or three people instead of one. By the way, on this hotel example, I, I go to check in. This isn't so long ago into one of these major hotel chains. They go, oh, do you have a loyalty card? I go, it's not already on there. My travel people didn't put it on. Oh, they'll look it up. They go, well, which one are you? They name three. They're all me. They have three. I'm in their loyalty club three times. I'm like, hey, can you just put those all together? It's all me. That like, oh no, we I, oh we don't really. You might know right. number. And I'm like, well, okay, which one has the most points? I want to be that Jeff Jonas. But this problem is ubiquitous, and it turns right. out it's super expensive to build. Right. Like people think you can hire a little team and do some uh, AI ML and think you're going to match well. And I'm telling you, man, you, you cannot create something competitive in five years for 20 million. Like literally. Right. Well, I used to have this conversation to Gartner all the time in related to kind of build, make or buy around NDM. When I would talk to, it didn't matter. I mean, like it could just any, any very, very large company that has a robust development presence and they've got engineers and they've got architects and they've got really, really smart people. And, and I had a number of conversations at Gartner where people were like, okay, well, we can just build this thing, right? This, this MDM thing or a data quality tool. It didn't matter, right? Like we can just build this. And I said, well, yeesh, you, you, you know, there'd be, there be, there be dragons here um, yeah. because companies have been trying to figure this out for decades. And there are a, there's major, major, major investments that you need to make. And why would you remake the wheel when there are companies like Sensing and others that do this for a living and have been for a long time? Uh, a quote that I heard from a, a friend that is an exec, a uh, technical exec at Deloitte's uh, uh, Center for Energy Resolution Excellence. He says, you know why it's so hard? I'm like, why? It's so hard to explain to people. He goes, because there's a thousand edge cases. As soon as you talk about doing people data, company data, then different geographies, then different cultures and different languages, and then this one's got these features and that one's got those features, it just piles on, just becomes very, very complicated. Right. Anyway, that gets down to my purpose, you know, or my company's purpose is to just make this, make world-class entity resolution available to everybody. Right. And so we have a developer tool. People plug it in. It's like, why would you write your own spell check and grammar check? Or imagine going to a company and go, hey, what's this team do? They go, oh, they're working on sentence parsing, building spell and grammar checking. You're like, <laughs> what? Right. Right. why don't you just plug in a library? And so that's what we are. It's, uh, you can do entity resolution in as few as three API calls. And developers just compile us into the Java, Python, or C. It all runs local, lives in their stack. You don't have to inherit our yeah. stack. It's a link library, you know, a, a dynamic link library or a yep. shared object. Good old-fashioned DLL, yeah.
Yeah. It, 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 it's interesting. I was at a conference this week, uh, the Data Governance and Information Quality Conference in Washington, D.C., and I was able to hook up with an old friend. I, I'd lived in D.C. for a decade prior to, to, to living where I live now. Uh, hooked up with an old friend who works for the federal government. I, I won't say which branch, but a branch that would be very, very concerned about people and the movement of people globally. And this is a huge issue. And so it's not just a matter of, you know, convenience and does the hotel give you foam or feather pillows? But in the case of national governments, we're, we're talking about national security here. Absolutely. I mean, or in the case of an airline, for example. Yeah. What's that? I missed that again. Oh, or in the case of airlines, right? Like, yeah. I, I, yeah. Yeah, as soon as you have a, a list of people that you maybe wouldn't want to let into the U.S. By the way, that Boston shoe bomber was on the list. But when, when that person came to the U.S., they had one, one extra consonant in their last name. And so the, the matching software missed it. And they let the Boston shoe bomber in when they, which they already knew not to let them in. I know I worked with this bank in Asia and they they fired a money launderer. You know, it's like, hey, you're no good. Your money's no good here. You're a money launderer. The same person shows up in India, one letter different in their last name and a different passport. And they thought they're like, yay, we have a great customer. It's just a, 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 a wolf in sheep's clothing, you know, just sneaking back in. By the way, it turns out an entity resolution, if you're trying to catch clever bad people, but clever bad people don't use the same name and address in every record. You can't even do record matching because their their purpose is deny you. They're trying to separate their channels. They don't want you to figure out this person and that person are the same. So they're using their middle name. They transpose the month and day and the date of birth. They use the post office box instead of the address. And so you you can't even use record matching. You know, record matching is a record. You're trying to find another record. And uh, what we spent years figuring out how to do at scale in real time is entity centric learning. And what that means is as as two or three records become known to be the same person, maybe you have an address on this record and on that record you had a middle name and on this one you had a date of birth that they'd used. And by the way, this gets to like why there's no such thing as a single version of truth is they used a date of birth they'd never used before, but that's their brothers and they just, it's easy to remember, you know? Right. And so now entity centric learning as a record comes in and you're matching it to this union. And if you're trying to catch clever, bad people, that's essential. And then it turns out if you're just trying to do you know, marketing and householding, entity-centric learning makes makes magic. Yeah. So, yeah. so just to kind of wrap on the mm. kind of the idea of entity resolution, I, I think a lot of CDOs could say, "Well, that's really kind of not relevant to me," or that sounds like an edge case. But I would I would argue that uh, that that knowing who your customers, or your suppliers, or your vendors, or your assets, or your employees, or your locations doesn't matter is is kind of the kernel with a K. <laughs> it's it's sitting it's sitting at the beating heart of your data, and if you don't have control over that process, and if you can't tell the difference between Jeff and Jeffrey, everything else you try to do, whether that's analytics, whether that is any sort of operational task, will be will be compromised. So that's the importance of entity resolution. Now, and can I add though, and yeah. downstream machine learning. If right. you're using machine learning to find fraudulent behavior, and you're training it on a system that has four percent or eight percent duplicates. Like how how good are those models going to be? Right. Yeah. Right. So yeah, I'm yeah totally totally agree. Whether it's machine learning, whether yeah, it, ab absolutely. Again, kind of the, the the beating heart of of your data, as it were. Um, you had mentioned a, a few minutes ago uh, this this idea of a you know 
the death of the single version of the truth. And and, and let's kind of wind back the clock just, just a little bit here. Um, and I would say maybe 20 years ago-ish, when the world was still largely dominated by large ERP stacks, the Siebels of the world, uh, and that ilk, um, where ERP and CRM kind of gained prominence, this idea of a single version of the truth kind of came along with that, I would say. It was kind of tagged on and appended into kind of the proliferation of ERP and then subsequently the proliferation of, of CRM. But where organizations believed that they needed to have a single customer record, one, one to rule them all, and it was managed in one single place and it had very, very tight controls over it and it had tight governance and only certain people could update it, right? And this is kind of the old legacy model of ERPs where there was a single customer table and a single supplier table. And that one table fed everything. It fed procurement, it fed manufacturing, it fed logistics, it fed RevRec, you name it. That one table was, was again, kind of the beating heart of an ERP stack. And, and that worked for a while. And that worked for a while. And then along comes CRM. And then, and, and thank you, Mark Benioff. And, and now you can go and deploy a CRM system anywhere and put it on your credit card. And sales and marketing people can manage their own customer records. And lo and behold, you start to have a drift between what's in an ERP and what's in a CRM, where that now is, has been magnified a hundredfold thanks to the democratization of IT. And you've got pockets of, we, we can just pick on customer because that's an easy one. You've got pockets of customer data all over the place. And there are still many people that are saying, well, single version of the truth, you need a single version of, of, of the truth, when in reality, at an operational level, at an operational level, um, there are multiple versions of the truth. The way that the, a marketer would define a customer is different than a way somebody in finance may define a customer, particularly B2B, less so B2C, but particularly B2B, where one would be a sell-to and the other is a bill-to, and they're both correct. And they're both and they're both correct. So what we've been seeing over the last few years is kind of challenging the notion of this idea of one version of the truth to 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 rule them all. But a lot of people still think that's what MDM is, and it can be that if you want it to be that. It doesn't have to be that. But I'd love your your thoughts, Jeff. I just kind of gave a what I thought was like the evolution of how we got to this this place where a lot of people think that there needs to be one to rule them all. And and, and when you hear me say that, what do you think? First of all, I'm thinking it's really fun to geek out with people that know the business, you know? Yeah. That's my first thought. Come on, oh, man, this is fun. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, there's a there's two. I think of uh, the single version of truth is, well, those are the dark ages, okay? The dark, dark days. Um, uh, the, the truth is you really want systems where you can present truth to the eye of the beholder. It's about who's the recipient, but there's two forms of truth. One is who's who, there's a, I want to separate for a moment the truth about who's who from which attributes the best attribute, which date of birth, which address is the best address, best, what's the best name and, you know, address, phone and whatnot when communicating, right? To create the golden record. One is a lot of some, a, a number of systems are law, have loss E processes. So when they make a decision to bring things together, they keep the longest name, you know, if they got Richard and Dick, they throw Dick out, they keep Richard, or they keep Elizabeth over Beth. Uh, bad news there is if you ever change your mind because they're sisters or it's a junior senior, you can't take them apart. So that's one reason to keep every variation of truth. 
Um, I'll, I'll stay on the attribute side for a minute, but then maybe at the end, if you remind me, we'll go back to the how many entities does the organization have, and do you really want marketing to have a different count than finance when you're trying to answer to the street? Okay, because I think there's a, there's a, a better way to do that. But when it comes to these features, I want to go back to this story where I I used to try to go get it. I tried once. It was my biggest customer ever at the time. And I was going to, to define single version of truth. And we were going to pick which address was going to be the address for the enterprise. So I'm going to tell you the story, okay? Because it really, it was a face plant, okay? Just full on. This is uh, my generation three entity resolution. Uh, the company doesn't exist now. It was a parent company. It was called Sendant, C-E-N-D-A-N-T. doesn't exist yep, now. Remember it? But they owned 23% of all the hotels. Ramada, Howard Johnson, Super, Super 8, Days Inn, Travelage, uh, Travel Lodge, Wingate. They owned Avis and Budget Rent-A-Car. They owned ERA, Century 21, and Coldwell Banker, and Jackson Hewitt. They owned a lot of... And they wanted to take a billion records. And no, no common key. Entity resolved to figure out who's who to get a, a 360 profile, and they use it for marketing. The goal was to predict who was going to go to Orlando the second week of March. And if you really believe they were going to go, is this the kind of person easier to influence three days before or three weeks before? So I'm built. This is before the word big data, by the way, okay? Right. This is like billion record, 100 million person entity resolution system. I go to this meeting with the heads of marketing, and I march in, and I go, look, we're here today because... We're going to choose what's the best address. Let me tell you what happens next. One of the hotels goes, well, if our customer told us to use this address on the loyalty club statement, I don't care what else this organization has. Maybe they're having an affair with somebody. It's not on me right. to change that address. And I'm like, oh, that was like the clue, you know? And the other one was like, if somebody just gave me a hotel reservation address as a chip, you know, over the phone where an operator typed it in or online and it's super messy. I'd rather have an address off of a license or a loyalty club. So I'll take your address and you could tell right there the definition of the best feature was particular to the recipient. And that's where I really uh, we had to rethink this single version of truth. And it led us to something called full attribution systems where we keep every variation of mm -hmm. every feature that we get from every record source and rules of visibility, which happens after us. It's actually can be trivial. Take the longest thing, like the longest name, take the most recent address, or you can make it more sophisticated. Yeah. But rules of visibility is like a down, downstream thing because what, what we now present is like, Entity ID 57 has 16 things in it. There's four addresses, three dates of birth, da, da, da. Now I wanna throw in one more thing while I'm on a roll. <laughs> My son has count them two dates of birth. It's a bad daddy story and it's very embarrassing. My son is born on September uh, 2nd, okay? Fourth, I go Virgos. <laughs> hey, that's awesome. Yeah. Okay, well, for a moment, he was older than you, and for a moment, he was younger than you because oh, okay. Okay. he was born on September 2nd. For some reason, I thought he was born on September 5th, and I convinced mom and the grandparents, 
and we celebrated his birthday on the 5th for years. We used the 5th for every doctor's visit, every, you know, sign up for Ricky Rick news, you know, whatever. Imagine that date of birth being in 50 or 100 databases September 5th. I get ready to take him to Mexico. I order his birth certificate. And to my surprise, it's September 2nd. How about that? Hey, you got to tell your kid you, you got your birthday. <laughs> Oops. But I want you to imagine this from a single version of truth. Imagine having evidence of one date of birth over and over and over and over and over for years. September 5th. And now suddenly September 2nd shows up. Yeah. Really upon you to say, well, because I have so much evidence, I'm going to suppress it. I'm going to snuff that little piece out, that bad data. If you do that, you can't let um, diversity, you have to let diversity fester. And you can't, it, the, 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 the dissenting voice would never add up. You would never get to where the new date of birth is more predominant if you couldn't keep the old. So you have to have systems that support multiple dates of birth if you want right. to do this well. Anyway. Right. Yeah, I, I I love the story. So I've I've got a virgin. I've got a, I've got a virgin. So um, this was about oh maybe even fifteen years ago, maybe even more. So twenty years ago, I think that's accurate. Bright eyed, bushy tail. Uh, I'm 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 running this MDM program in an IT shop, and we're <laughs> we've been tasked to come up with a single version of the truth. And I had the meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting with marketing and finance, and we bring them all in together in a room, and we we would have the you know the, the kind of the the working session you know, the, 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 to figure out, you know, who wins, right? Mm. And, and and we couldn't get them to agree. So that that's, that, I mean, that, that's standard stuff. We're right, you're right, we're right, we're right, you're right. Uh, and, and I was just finally given an edict uh, by our uh, by our CTO is like, just go figure it out. Hey, IT, just go figure it out. It's like, okay. So we, we the, the, the technical people sat down and we figured out, okay, um, we, we were smart. We, we can do this. And what we did is we were looking at B2B customers and we started to build all of these rules, these cascading rules, all these if thens, but last update date, whether it was null or not null and all of these fancy rules and what, what was it structured correctly. And we looked across all these sources of data and this was a multi-week, if not a month long plus uh, exercise because we actually made multiple iterations of it as well. So we put the rules into an MDM. It was an IBM, by the way, this thing called Initiate. Oh, yeah. You probably remember. I was in IBM and I encouraged them to buy that great company. Yeah. And, and, and so we and we do the rules and we run multi multiple iterations, multiple iterations. Like, yep, 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 yep. So to figure out and make sure that what came out of the other end of the sausage grinder actually fully reflected the, the business rules that we had, we had defined up front. We thought we were the smartest people on the planet. We start to engage some of the end users in kind of unit testing uh, of this stuff, and and what they said is, "What the hell is this? I don't even I don't even recognize this. This this makes no sense. This record can't even exist in real space and time, because what you've done here is is we we have patched together a customer record at an attribute level, where we were kind of plucking this this address, this address, this address. We had prioritized sources, right? We said, oh, we don't trust our salespeople." So we'll prioritize Salesforce lower. We'll prioritize the ERP higher because you know there's more rigor that goes into that, that data. So that's going to probably be better quality data. And on and on and on. And when we created something I called Franken Record, that it couldn't <laughs> actually exist in real time and space because there were these build tos and ship tos that were completely different. We had a we had a ship to addresses for for companies that weren't even reflective of an Acme Incorporated address. We'd say Acme Incorporated, and then we have this address, and the address is for some sort of warehouse or a loading bay where Acme was doing business, but it didn't actually conduct business there. 
Um, and that was months of, of chasing our tail on that by, by figuring out, by thinking that we could, 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 could congeal these multiple versions of the truth into something that looked truthful and it ended up being a disaster. Those were the dark days, man. This whole thing, <laughs> I think that there's only, there can be one of something when there's a plurality of things and to have to then choose one is, uh, you, you might need to choose one at the moment you go to mail something to somebody, right. but you can ask that team, what is their precedence? And, and somebody else has to pick something when you report something to the IRS with a, with a tax ID, you're going to have to pick one if there's two. Yeah. You need to call somebody to find out or validate it. Yeah. Well, well, so that's the good news. The good news is, is we have evolved to a place now where as data leaders, we can say everybody wins, at least at an operating level at least at an operating level. I would argue as you go from kind of functional to cross-functional to enterprise-wide, those, these, those differences need to be resolved somehow, some way. Because if your CEO asks, if you ask your team, how many customers do we have? There's, there can only be one answer at your level of the organization. Well, that's, I was going to say to me, there's two different things about single versions of truth. One is which attributes are the winners? You know, which name and address are you going to pick if you only pick one when you have a, a list? But the other one is how many unique entities are there? And, and that I really think it's most fitting. I, I hate to generalize, but I'm going to say in the 95 percentile, you're best off having a pessimistic view that you use for the organization. And if you and, and I'll give you an example. One thing might be a possible match. It's possible when that's presented to the marketing department, they become optimistic and move possible matches in to do a single mailing because it's just, you know, a, a campaign oriented. But that way you get uh, an exact entity account across uh, an exact entity count across the enterprise. Yet I will call it through a lens of optimism or in the moment doing dynamic entity resolution, taking a portion of the graph, so to speak. And then in that moment, using uh, something more optimistic or householding even is that entity is now a surname and an address. And, and, and then using that in the, you know, for the different, um, for example, marketing group or somebody. But you yeah. can really have, it's easier to have a pessimistic view and optimistically roll things in as you service the enterprise than have an optimistic graph and then try to figure out how to bust things out uh, downstream for, for right really precision things like, hey, we're going to cancel their account or call it a fraud alert when you're right. sitting there. Well, yeah, it's not fraud. <laughs> I used to explain this at Gartner often when I had conversations trying to explain the kind of this concept of fit for purpose, right? What, what's, what's, what's the right fit for purpose here? And, and, and the phrase that I often used was, what's the cost of being wrong, right? And in the marketing world, the cost of being wrong is generally fairly low. I think that's kind of the, the way that I was expressing what you would call an optimistic view, meaning, mm -hmm. meaning, meaning we would err for, it's okay to have more false positives. I think is what you, what, that's, that's what you're using the word optimistic is, yeah. is it's okay if there's some false positive work their way in because oh, we give the wrong offer, they get the wrong piece of mail. It's not optimal, but we're not gonna get sued. Pro probably, right, not not. But on the on the kind of the finance fraud compliance national security level, that's where you need to be more pessimistic and where you need to be buttoned down on the false positives, because that could be the difference between, well, a lot, a lot of different dire consequences, the, the least of which being, you know, uh, running afoul with regulatory 
uh, constraints. You you agree? Yeah, really and, what you said. and falsely uh, too many false positives in systems where you're you're looking for risk and uh, bad actors. You know, bad guy hunting is you're stopping the wrong people. You're infringing on people's rights and freedoms. There's back, way back when uh, TSA used to do its matching. I used yeah. to get a lot of calls from people before they introduced date of birth because so many people were being stopped and questioned because of the false positives, you know, yep. it needed some additional attributes. Yep. I remember that after 9-11 where, where you would hear all the time that there were like, like senators and Congress people were finding their way, their, their way under the no fly list. Right. Um, and that was a big deal right after 9-11. I remember that. Yeah. So, so I, is it safe to assume then that within your solution or potentially leveraging an MDM for this, I'm not sure whether it would matter, but we're, we're that, those views, the pessimistic versus optimistic view could be expressed by consuming an application or consuming. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. What what you would do with uh, sensing is you likely, you could run a version pessimistic and a version optimistic. But if you're doing enterprise and data fabric around this, you'd likely have a pessimistic view. And in the moment as you're publishing data, you'd roll things up, you'd roll in possible matches. Uh, it's a super simple transform. We're JSON in, JSON out. Like we're, okay. we're a developer tool, right? Like we're an API. So the output that we produce, though, produces the evidence that you'd need of possible matches, something else called ambiguous, that you can just easily roll it right up yeah. and combine it and get um, that, you know, single optimistic view. And then I accidentally get sent a hair care product, you know. <laughs> hey, you never know. You never know. You, you could you could you could want to soften that skin maybe a little bit. Who knows? Um, so. Interesting. In, in kind of old school MDM world, there's always been an assumption that the algorithms can only get us so far, right? And, and that you need to have some sort of capability. And this is still a critical capability for MDM. Like if you, if you look at, you know, Gartner's Magic Quadrant, they will say, Gartner will say, you need to have a capability for data stewardship because the algorithms are only so smart, right? Uh, first of all, do you agree with that assertion? <laughs> there are definitely times, uh, cases in data where you want a human to take a look to make an adjudication. But I will tell you, in large scale systems, you don't have enough humans. Second, I will tell you, how does the human do it? The human is, is using additional data. It's either data stuck in their head, okay, or they're Googling it or searching up somewhere or calling the patient. <clears throat> but a lot of times, you got to actually do research, okay? I remember testing some data from Venice Beach, California, uh, business data, and I lived there, so I knew things about the locality. And it, there were two. There's Lincoln Boulevard goes right through, uh, right, right through it. There was a locksmith store here and here. I thought my software did it wrong, and then I googled it and realized. No, I thought my software did it. Which way was it? Anyway, I googled it and realized my software was wrong. And then I called them and it turned out they just moved. So the software was right. So, <laughs> uh, so making these decisions about records with some human intervention is about adding data. And one of the most exciting things that we propose is there are kinds of data often the organization has in a different data set over there that is the additional data needed. Right. W wouldn't it not be magical if 30% of your maybes got resolved? just by widening the observation space. And, yeah. and because our software is sequence neutral, 
Meaning, did you did you load record A first, then B, then C, or C first, then B, then A? Because it doesn't matter. It fixes it, no matter what way it's loaded. You can load a few data sets and go, wow, we got we got a, quite a few possible matches there. We're going to need 70 people to review those for a year. Then you'll ask yourself, hey, maybe we can buy some corporate registry data from Dun & Bradstreet or get it from Open Corporates, Peter Van Dyke. Or maybe we have an extra set of data in the enterprise. And then you just load that and it, and it, and it cleans them up. It zippers some together and moves them into matches and it moves the others over here into relationships. So you have to have governance. Uh, these are things that we don't do. We just do the matching and then people build us into things that would have governance and right. visualization. Yeah. Right. Well, what you describe, I, I, I kind of, at least through the lens of MDM use cases, what you described, um, I kind of posited as a bit of a paradox when I was a Gartner. And I actually wrote about this a, a certain amount uh, when I was a Gartner, which is this idea that with the technology that we have today, with, with knowledge graphs, with AI and ML, in theory, you could keep adding more and more and more data to a an evaluation set, shall we say? I don't know a better word, but the candidate data, source data, some sort of data that's being evaluated. The more and more data that you add to that process, the more insights you could drive from an MDM perspective. As a matter of fact, if your graphs are good enough, you could be you could figure out some of the unknown knowns, right? You could you could you could start to understand relationships that are relevant from an MDM perspective that you didn't even know about in the past. Oh, yeah. However, historically, historically, when you start throwing a lot of data into this process, it becomes very compute intense and things start to really, really slow down. Is that what you're seeing now or, or are things yeah. changing? Well, <clears throat> I will tell you, uh, our fifth generation engine was scaling to you know, 100 billion input records and we learned a few things. And when we started the sixth gen engine, and I said, I gave the $50 million budget. We literally spent one year on the schema, the structure of the, of the data store. Structure governs function. I can look at the schema of a database or data modelers can, and you can tell them what the behavior will be. You can tell them when you see the structure and the indexes, you can tell them how that, what, what it can do and can't do. We spent a year just modeling the schema. Because if you get the schema wrong, you can't scale. You have a full rewrite. Right. And I'll tell you what, the hardest thing to do in this space, we're a transactional entity resolution, which means while you're loading a bulk batch of 100 million records, while you're doing user queries, while you're onboarding new customers, onesie, twosie, and you're doing 10,000 GDPR deletes all at the same time, no AB system, no reload. Now you've, uh, you've ingested hundreds of millions, or let's just say a billion records. And our big customers have 10 billion records. You have a billion records. You get one record in. Not only do you have to figure out, is it a new entity or a known entity? You have to ask yourself, had I known that in the beginning, over the billion decisions that I've made already, would I have made any differently? Like, right. Rebase like, yep. Yeah, would this be the evidence that that's a junior or senior and I should take them apart? Or is that the evidence that this Pat is really that Patricia, not that Patrick? Doing that in real time at thousands of transactions a second and fixing the past is, is honestly... That and, and simple, where you don't have to train it and tune it anymore, self-tuning and self-learning self out of the box is what makes something the difference between, you know, 10 million to build and 50. Right, exactly. Yeah. That's, the, that's the you don't want to try to make this on your own argument. Um, one thing that I find a little, a little interesting here is 
maybe I'm a, a little old and a little old school. And I kind of, getting back to the question about is there going to always be a role for, for data stewards and adjudication, particularly in those pessimistic use cases that you were talking about where, where you need to button things down. Historically, I've kind of always kind of leaned towards, well, we'll always need humans. But but I'll tell you, one of, one of the more kind of lasting conversations that I ever had as a Gartner analyst, and, and I can't I can't say who it was with, but it was with a vendor that was very active in the kind of the AI ML space. And I said, well, you'll always need data stewards. We'll always need human beings in this in this process flow because the uh, this, the machines can only be so smart. And and the answer to that from this person, which really still sticks in my head to this day, the answer was, well, that assumes the, the people are smarter than the machines. And, and, and what this person was saying is that, is that they had run test after test after test where the machine was outperforming, consistently outperforming the human and in a more predictable, explainable way. Well, for A, uh, we see that when we're, we're producing better than human results out of the box. And the, and the way that you can easily observe that is if humans look at the same data set, just try to sort it out by themselves, they might find a few things we missed. We'll find more things they missed. And even if it comes down to exhaustion, you know, just there's only so long you just you're looking at messy addresses. You don't realize the part of the address that matching kind of over here and tucked in. And so, you know, we are consistently outperform that. But I will say this is that humans have a lot of orthogonal data and judgment. And very few AI ML domains have a sufficient amount, a sufficiently wide and diverse observation space to have human judgment. And the more significant those decisions are, and let's say in an MDM context, where maybe you have more maybes than you would want to task a team for, you would triage it to the ones that your top 500 customers, for example, where it's a bigger consequence to treat, you know, in, in Vegas, we'd call them a whale. You, you do not want to take a whale and send them a promotion that says, if you come in on a Saturday, you can have $3 right. off the day, right? <clears throat> and so it's, you really can use your data to triage it, but I think it's going to be a long time before, uh, in some domains where uh, the, the judgment of humans, you can just ignore. Right. I, I think half the battle, um, at least this was true for me when I was responsible for entity resolution and responsible for MDM, half the battle was explainability and defensibility, Oof. right? Could, could you explain why somebody was looking at what they were looking at uh, and, and could you defend it? Right. Mm -hmm. do, do you have a, a leg stand enough, uh, strong enough to stand on? And, yeah. and often when it came down to human judgment, it was OK. Human did the best with the information that they had. That's it. I mean, and again, if it's if it's not something that is a compliance use case where it's like, OK, well, the human erred and now we're getting sued. Not good enough. If you're just talking about the use case that you just described. Right. Which is like a reward program or, you know, you know. Mm. making sure somebody gets the right offer, the right content that to me, it was, I was able to say, okay, a human made this call. They may have made the wrong call, but with the information that they had available, it was the best at the time. And, and, and for my stakeholders at the time, that was, that was good enough. And I think what we're seeing now is with machines, it was, oh, okay, well, we should have known this right. And wrong answer, these bad machines. And, and what I just heard you say is, 
we'll never have a training set big enough. I, I'm, I'm paraphrasing most, you now. Most organizations won't have a training set big enough. And big enough not as just vertically deep, but right. orthogonally wide. Right. Most don't, unless you're right. the biggest companies on the world and you have a representation of all of the cultures. Just a simple example. Arabic names, Bin and Hajj isn't really part of the name. Just the way you think about matching names needs to be different. Right. And you're not going to match a Cyrillic name that's in Russian, but the way you're going to match a Chinese name, you know, a Mandarin name. And are, are you going to have a sufficient amount of data to train all of that? And the answer to the 99 percentile is no. Right. Exactly. No. Yeah. So in our last few minutes here, um, I'd love to, to hear your thoughts on where you kind of see things are going, right? Like, let's let's wind forward the clock five <clears throat> years-ish, maybe. Um, we, we continue on a path of digital transformation and digital acceleration, and we kind of the world continues going where it's going. From the perspective of, of entity resolution and, and where that fits in the modern data ecosystem and where that fits from an overall data strategy perspective, where do you see things heading? What's different and, and what would a CDO need to start thinking about now to respond to this future state that you described? I think uh, it's gonna become more and more obvious that high quality entity resolution sitting in between raw data and decisions is essential. If you're making any decisions and you're not accurately counting, is it three people or one? All downstream decisions, all downstream learning are going to be very materially affected by that. It's going to be very difficult to compete. And so in the, you know, in the big elephant, uh, big animal picture, right, it's data sources are going to are going to take form as context. I, I've done over the years a lot of uh, presentations around the use of puzzles, you know, the difference between a pile of puzzle pieces and a puzzle assembled. And entity resolution is just one of those processes that is organizing the entities and graphing them for downstream consumption. I think the second thing is making uh, better decisions faster is going to be essential to be competitive. And so people running batch processes, whether you're reloading once a day or once a month or once a quarter, where you have the right information, but you can't see it. It's like trying to cross, cross the street when you can only see how it looked five minutes ago. Like it is not competitive. And so what I think we're going to see is more, uh, uh, you could call entity resolution expertly counting your entities, right? Expert. It's a form of expert counting. You're going to see real, real-time counting of who's who and who's related to who, and using that to, to drive decisions while they're happening. Not after the fact. Not like, oh, we already gave them the loan. Oh, we already gave them the car. They already let them in the country. Or we already missed that. We already missed that opportunity to market to them in in moment when they were logged into the portal. And so I think the most competitive organizations are going to be, be able to make sense of what they know while that they're observing it so they can do something about it. So I think we're going to see a collapse in latency to do real-time decisioning. So it's, it's interesting. Historically, entity resolution, well, not always, but to a certain degree, at least from my perspective, I, I tend to be a little kind of IT-centric. Has, has lived in the world of data management, with data quality, MDM, which has always been kind of the data world, back office, 
right? And and that's why I think you know it's it's batch, right? Like we, we do our report runs once every 24 hours, and if we can keep it up daily, that that's good enough. Whether that is a, a load for BI or whether that is a load for data quality, or whether even it's just an ETL process that, that is supporting some sort of operational uh, use case downstream. What you're describing seems to be a world where those data management processes, which would arguably include entity resolution and potentially even others, including mm -hmm. data quality, MDM, lots mm -hmm. of other, where those things are no longer over there on the other side of the fence, where they're no longer kind of in this other world where they are deeply intertwined with application processes, with CRM processes, with the RP processes. You agree? Yeah. In fact, I mean, you're, I'm thinking out loud here, but whether it's 30-70 or 50-50 or 70-30, there's entity resolution processes that get built into ETLs and MDMs. Yep. People have been building, I'll call them third world, sorry, but you know, um, minimum viable products, first base attempts at entity resolution, but those, those live in uh, all kinds of like CRMs and KYCs and AMLs, all these systems, vendor supply chains, all these things where you're trying to not onboard duplicates, uh, you're trying to find connections between these customers and those customers. It, it's, a, it's a different family use of entity resolution, but it's the same thing. Right. You know, and I think what we'll see is, I mean, MDM products is really entity resolution with governance and synchronization, right? When you do yep. that, I think we're going to see the future where I'll call them MDM systems, but they're really Entity 360 systems with governance and sync. Uh, there's a chance, especially as they can service more elements of the enterprise, you know, they can service larger scales, they can service real time. I think we're going to see them used as components in these other uh, workflows where the, the group that's got the custom AML software inside the bank is just going to use the enterprise entity resolution or Entity 360 and benefit from the governance and the sync and the things that come with it, so. ERAS, Entity Resolution as a Service. Oh, I was gonna say ERAS, what's ERAS? Entity Resolution as a Service, you gotta add the as a service to it, right? Um, I was just having a conversation <laughs> last week in, in DC where I was advocating governance as a service, which of course is gas. Um, so um, that one may not stick as well, but uh, that's basically what I'm hearing you say, right? Which is which is it's just this service that you call, and maybe it's a shared service enterprise wide um, that IT manages and maintains, but that is is kind of deeply embedded into the into the applications that need it. Yeah, and I, I think less. I think a big trend is as the terminology and the commonality of it becomes more known, and how ubiquitous the problem is. I think it's going to become more commoditized. Yeah. You know, where just people can get access to it with and not have to toil on it and have a team of 10 or 20 of their best scientists work on that. They can work on something else. Right. Yeah. Or where uh, what I was even talking about in DC is potentially some of these use cases become cross company or intra or inter company, right? Where it is yeah. is if if you are part of a complex value chain, for example, a supply chain, where every every participant in that chain has access to some of that capability, right? Where you have access to that capability and where the answers are consistent across, or <clears throat> relatively consistent, or at least predictable across the value chain. So That's, that is 
companies that are really engaged in digital transformation are going to put entity services in their data fabric. It'll be a tier one player. Right. Yeah, and it's going right. to service enterprise needs. Although, I'll tell you, uh, on the theory, sometimes when you have a really big project and, and it's going to be really important, if people realize how important it's going to be, there's a lot of committees and subcommittees formed. I would argue that if we knew how important the internet was going to be in the beginning, we might have still been working on the subcommittees around it, you know? And I say this because uh, this is a tip for a CDO uh, is if you have a really big horizontal vision, you might get one running first and then promote it up, start letting it take on a horizontal role. If you're a big complex company and you announce to, cause maybe there's other CDOs and other groups, or maybe you're just herding cats because you're CDO of all CDOs. To tell somebody there's going to be one in service everybody, you'll spend, you could, you could spend years bringing it together. Instead, it's best to have a tally helps conspiracy to do good. Just pull one up, make it great, and start making it available horizontally. That's, I think, a better way uh, with less friction to have a bigger company impact. I, I couldn't agree more. There's, there's going to be word for that, right? Like uh, stealth <laughs> strategy or something, right? Because I've absolutely seen this, which oh, is I'm going to build the shared service, whatever the shared service is. I'm, I'm going to build. I'm going to build it, and you're going to use it. No, I'm not. Oh yeah, everyone. No, comes I'm not. Why am I going to do? Why am I going to do this? Right? I'm not. I'm not doing this. I'm not. I'm not taking the edict. Versus the I'm going to build this, and I'm going to show some value, and then you're going to want to use it because you're going to see how valuable it is. So certainly some, some truth there. Maybe that's just touching a little bit more on human nature. And you know, we, we need to figure things out on our own. Data people, kind of IT people, we certainly do. That's that's true. So I, I love that advice. That's a great way to end the conversation. I think that the, the last nugget of wisdom there for aspiring or current CDOs and in, in, in how to be stealthy in executing their data strategy. I, I love it. Jeff, thanks so much for your time. As always, good to see you. Are you home by the way? I call Vegas home, but I, I don't, I'm nomadic, so I'm out and about. Well, I this, everywhere. well I know, because every time I talk to you, you're somewhere else. Like, you're, well, I'm in Lisbon, or I'm in London, or I'm, <laughs> I, I, I'm somewhere else, because you're, you're traveling the world doing your marathons. Triathlons. Triathlons. Which oh, included a marathon okay. at the end. It's, it's still a marathon. That's just the last it, part. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're 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 making the marathoners look, you know, like underachievers is what you're saying with your focus on the uh, on the triathlon. Not, not at my speed. Not at my speed. All right. <laughs> so All good right. to see you. Enjoy our chat. Look forward to doing it again sometime in the near future. And yeah, uh, awesome. for, thanks for having me join your program, man. Thank you. And for uh, our listeners, thank you again for tuning into CDO Matters. I look forward to another episode with you sometime soon.